Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. I want to invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles or tune your devices to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to say some things before we jump into the text, but I want us to be ready when we get there. Uh, We are covering Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. So it is going to be a fun morning together, and I look forward to sharing it with you. Um, As I was thinking about the themes in this passage, um, one that came up for me led me to Google a question this last week, and the question was, what can you not live without? I was just interested to seeing what the interweb would have to say about such things. And the question popped up, a bunch of forums and uh, posts on different websites, websites ranging from Yelp to eHarmony to Business Insider, all reflecting on this question, what can you not live without? And the answers were pretty predictable, uh, but interesting. Things like electronics, my iPhone, my TV, my whatever, um, hobbies, my favorites, you know, my favorites, uh, sport, music, movie, food, whatever, place, the beach got a lot of love, uh, pets were in there, people, of course. But what I found interesting, and I surveyed a handful of these things, what I found interesting was that nowhere on any list did I find the one thing that I think no human can live without, hope. I'm not sure anything is more essential to getting out of bed in the morning than hope. And hope may not always be on the front of our minds, but it certainly seems to be everywhere else. Check this out. There are over 15 cities in the United States just named Hope. Four more in Canada, two in the UK, and one in New Zealand. Hope is the name of five movies, a TV network, a computer programming language, a conference for computer hackers. I promise I did not attend. An ocean circulation model, whatever the heck that is. (laughs) A fictional character in the Marvel Comics universe. 16 ships in the Royal Navy. Three different colleges and universities. A Slovakian political party. An island, a railway station, and your favorite, or not, a poster of the president. I mean, hope is everywhere, right? One could excuse a person if looking on from the outside, they asked us the question, are y'all obsessed with hope? I see it all over the place. I hear it too in your verbiage. Nobody wants to be hopeless, let's still have your hopes dashed. It's dangerous to get your hopes up, but we all do it. We hope for good things, hope not for bad things, and hope to see again our loved ones to whom we must say goodbye. We hope for the best. We even hope against hope. I don't know if hope springs eternal, but I certainly hope so. And uh, you probably do too. Hope is kind of a big deal to us, but one of the things that we eventually ask is, is our hope more than just kind of a fake dream? Is it more than just wish fulfillment? Is there any difference between hoping for something or wishing for something? Is our hope uh, stable? Is it safe? Is it secure? I mean, as soon as we understand the phrase, happily ever after, we wonder at times if these whispers of hope that we hear from our hearts are telling us the truth. And now we believe in Christ that we found the hope that we're looking for. We found the hope that the world is waiting for. Life is hard, no question, but God will bring us to a glory. God will bring us to a future. God will bring us to reality one day that makes today's pain seem soft and short. Hope is on the way. That is the conclusion of Romans chapter 8. But how do we know that hope is real? How do we know it can be counted on? How do we know that it's secure for us? And how do we know that it's available to everyone else? 
Those are the questions that haunt Romans 9 through 11. Now, I love Romans 8. And Mark is right, by the way. This is the best chapter in the book. He's also right, by the way, that you hired the wrong Defazio. But that's another conversation for another day. (laughs) He's right that Romans 8 is where Paul gets excited more than anywhere else. If I could only give you one chapter in the Bible, only one, it would be Romans 8. Because nowhere else do you see the the major storylines of Scripture all brought together in this climactic fury of logic and honesty and passion and truth. I mean, Paul really is going for it. It starts with, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm like, every time, amen. That's such good news for me. No condemnation. And it goes all the way through to the end where we read that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a, way to fit, what a way to start and what a way to finish, right? And really all through, it's the same kind of thing. And in this chapter, we have all of Romans 1 through 8 kind of summarized for us. This is what he's been arguing all along, that everybody, Jew, Gentile, old, young, male, female, slave-free, everybody can be saved the same way, not by living up to some standard of perfection, but by leaning into and receiving God's grace manifested in Jesus' death simply by placing our faith in him. So we have this good news that the love of God is ours. It's been given to us and nothing can take it away from us. That God has promised himself to us in Christ. He has promised himself to us. And what could possibly stop him from following through? And sometimes when I read Romans 8, I think, Paul, why why not just put down the pen? Just like drop the mic and walk away. You know what I mean? Like you are done, brother. You have said everything that needs to be said. But Paul doesn't. He doesn't put down the pen. He doesn't quit while he's ahead because he can't. Matter of fact, the very next verses, he's in tears. He moves from great celebration to weeping. Check out the first couple of verses in chapter nine and be mindful of the fact that he didn't put the chapter numbers in there. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 9 says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You go from elation to weeping. Why? Because Paul knows we have a problem. And it's a pretty big one. If we're going to believe what he's saying to us in the book of Romans. He knows that there's a potentially fatal objection that if he doesn't answer it, could unravel his entire defense of the gospel of Jesus, at which point this hope he's been arguing for and defending on our behalf cannot be counted on. And the problem for Paul is that most of his fellow Jews don't believe. Most of those who belonged to the people of Israel, those whom God has chosen, this is the chosen people, these are the chosen ones, Old Testament, right? Those whom God had made unbreakable promises to, those who believe that no matter what, No matter what, God would never abandon them. Most of those people looked at the so-called good news of Jesus and said, eh, no thanks, or worse. I mean, they couldn't fathom how their story could be fulfilled like this. A crucified Messiah? People getting saved without submitting themselves to the law? People worshiping our God without respecting our traditions? Like, how is this even possible? It doesn't seem to follow. And what's worse, this new Jesus movement seems to be saying that Israel's greatest failure, working with the Romans to crucify Jesus of Nazareth, that Israel's greatest moment of failure is actually the way that God brings salvation to the entire world. Now, how is this, they're saying, how is this what the Old Testament is about? Has God updated the rules somehow? Was he not telling us the truth the first time? Has he changed the game? Is he a flip-flopper? 
And if he is, then how do we know he can be trusted? I mean, if God is unpredictable, if God does, in fact, change his plan, then how can we be sure about anything? Yeah, Jewish rejection, while it may probably not be the thing that you thought about when you woke up this morning, it does raise crucial questions, the rejection of the gospel. But first of all, it raises the question of whether or not there's hope for, for them. I mean, they already have plenty of evidence, but they still resist. Is that the end? And if these people are cut off forever, then don't we have to admit that if his original people are totally gone, then don't we have to admit that maybe God's plan kind of partially failed? And perhaps closer to home, for me anyway, how do I know that my hope is stable and secure? And how do I know that the hope I promised to you is stable and secure? How do we know that this, this can be counted on? See, if God changed the game on them, and if he altered his plan on them, then how can we be sure that he's not going to do the same thing to us? How can we be sure that he hasn't already? Islam claims that we only have part of the story. Mormonism does too. Jesus is fine, they say. He's a prophet or maybe even a son of God, something like that. He's fine. He's good. He's whatever. But God kept revealing. You also need the Quran. You also need the book of Islam. You also need fill in the blank. How do we know? They're not right. How can we be sure that the story resolves in Jesus and Jesus alone? That's the objection Paul has to answer. And those are the questions that we've got to work to keep in the front of our minds as we walk through the long argument that Paul makes because he does answer it in Romans 9 through 11. <laughs> we got to take it as a whole. I've been laughing this past few weeks about trying to cover Romans 9 through 11 in like 30 minutes. I do it in three hours in the class, right? So 30 minutes on this, but honestly, it's the only way to do it. If you take one part out of this, Romans 9 through 11, if you take one part out of it and just look at it separately over here, you're going to wind up making all sorts of silly misunderstandings and in some cases, dangerous ones. It's like if uh, if you get a Valentine's Day card that just says, roses are red. Hey, cool poem, bro. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it doesn't make any sense apart from it. Similarly, we can't take any portion out. We've got to look at it together. So I'm happy to do it. We're going to look at all of this, Romans 9 through 11 as a whole. Now, I can't try to explain every part can't be done in this amount of time. So if I skip over your favorite verse, email me. I'd be happy to talk. If you think I'm skipping the controversial parts, come on over. I'm not afraid of those conversations. I'm happy to have them. Or better yet, check the podcast first of our Wednesday night class. We'll be on Romans 9 through 11 here in a few weeks, and I'll go much deeper in that context on these things. And the great thing about the podcast is you can set it to half speed, and I sound like a, or yeah, half speed, I sound like a normal person. You know what I mean? So you can, uh, you can enjoy that. Paul's point in Romans 9 through 11 is is actually pretty simple. Because God is faithful, hope is available to everyone. I I want you to look at that for a second. I want you to hear it. I want you to think about it. Because again, if we lose sight of this, then it's going to seem like we just had a bunch of weird kind of ideas all over the place, not all over the place, right here in this one place. Because God is consistent, because he doesn't change, hope is available to everyone. He's not finicky. He's not flip-floppy. He's not random. And therefore, you and I and our neighbors, whether Jew or Gentile, whether good or bad, can be saved. Now, if you look on the surface at Jesus in the Old Testament, it's true. On the surface, Jesus seems like a strange conclusion to the story. But at a deeper level, Paul's going to argue the plan hasn't changed one bit. This was what God wanted to do all along. This was where we've been headed. That's Paul's point. And uh, let me give you the three parts of this, and then we'll break each of them down a little bit more and try to see if we can't get our hands around what Paul is saying. 
Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans 11. So let me give you the big picture view, and then we'll dig into just a few of the many details. In Romans 9, Paul's point is that the plan always worked this way. God isn't doing something radically different. He actually always kind of has been doing, not kind of, he always has been doing the things that you see him doing now in Jesus. The plan is always by grace. The plan was always surprising in God's many ways that he was able to save people. It always worked this way. And then once he gets that laid out in chapter 10, he says, oh, and by the way, the plan has worked. It's not like God had, you know, plan A and that didn't work. So then he went to plan B, Jesus. No, plan A was always about Jesus. So he says, if you look at where this was supposed to be headed, this is it. Like we've arrived at the proper destination. God always knew that this is where we were going, and this is what he has been working to get us toward, whether you saw it or not. And then once he lays these things out, he can go ahead and come back to our reality in chapter 11, our daily reality, and say the plan is going to keep working. It's, it's, it's just going to keep doing what God intends for it to keep doing, which means everybody who believes, Gentile and Jew, can be saved, will be saved. All those who put their faith in Jesus will be saved. So there's hope for everybody. So Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. And let's, uh, let's, as I said, walk through this piece by piece. And I'm going to try to be careful to not go to uh, get into you know, nerdy professor mode. But we are going to look at a handful of these details. So Romans chapter 9, Paul says, The plan has always worked this way. This is how God has been operating from the start. And again, the two words I want you to write if you're taking notes are by grace. By grace. We're specifically picking it up in verse 6. Because in verses 1 through 5, Paul sets the tension that we've talked about. The Jews don't believe. These people with these great benefits don't believe. What do we do with this? And now Paul wants to go back and tell you that it's always operated by grace. Now let's start with verse 6, because this is a pretty important verse that we've got to keep in our minds, again, looking at the whole. And the further you get from it, the easier it is to forget. Paul says in 9.6, it is not as though God's word has failed. Again, plan A is still operating. We haven't moved on. It's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Catch that. He's saying not all who descended. So it's not just about like calling yourself an Israelite. There's this one definition of Israel, of, of those who descend from the people. And then there's this other idea of Israel being used to describe those who are in right relationship to God. So not all who descended from Israel are Israel. And then from this start, he kind of elaborates by looking at major moments in Israel's history. We're going to look at people like Abraham and his family, Isaac and Jacob and so on. We're going to look at Moses and the Exodus. We're going to look at the time when God's people got sent into exile. And so he's looking at these big moments. But it's not just a who's who. It's not just the Hall of Fame. It's not just, hey, this guy was cool and that lady was awesome and look at this thing that happened over here. It's not that random. It's actually quite intentional. Paul is backing up and he's taking you from the beginning of the Old Testament story through to the end of the Old Testament story. Notice this. Just follow along in chapter 9 and you'll see what I'm talking about. So Paul backs up and in verses 7 and following, he's talking about Abraham and his family. Abraham was the one that God called in order to fix what went wrong with Adam when people sinned and the world got jacked up. I'm going to start with Abraham. And then Abraham had these sons, Isaac. And then, and then so we move forward in, in Romans 9 with Isaac. And then Isaac had these sons, Jacob and Esau. That's verse 10. We're keeping on going. Jacob and Esau had their many sons, and they move forward. And then we get to the Exodus, verse 14. 
all the way through till the end of chapter 9, we're at the exile. So what I want you to notice, again, is that what Paul does is he backs up and says, let's look at the beginning of the plan and let's walk through it. And I want you to see that the same things that God was doing all the way through it are what you see him doing in Jesus. You get that basic point? The plan, has, plan always worked this way. Let's look at a couple of specifics, though. First thing he wants us to see is that it's not about ethnicity. It's about grace. So it's not about are you in the right family. It's about being those that God has made promises to. So we'll look at a couple of verses here in this regard. Verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary... It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So Abraham had two sons. His first son's name was Ishmael. His second son's name was Isaac. But the plan went through Isaac because he was the son that God promised he would work through. So Paul's looking at this going, it's not just about whether you can trace your physical descent to Abraham, because all these people over here can too. That's not the point. The point is, has God made promises to you? This is about him. And then he builds it out in the next verses by pointing out that uh, Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, who were twins, so born basically at the same time, Esau was born a few moments before. And Paul points out that before they were born, so before I had the opportunity to do anything good or bad, God decided that the younger one would actually be the person that he continued the plan through and that the older one would serve the younger. It was reversed what it was supposed to be. Why did God do this? God did this so that we would know that God does not choose us because of the reasons the world chooses us. God does not choose us by works. He doesn't save us by virtue of us earning it. He saves us by grace. So all through here, we see that it's not about ethnicity or works. It's about grace. What God is doing in Jesus, he's always been doing. And the middle sections of, of chapter 9, now I'm not going to read a bunch of the details, not because they're not important, they are critically important, but if I get into the details, I'll never get out. So let me give you the big picture. So after Abraham and his family in the Old Testament, yeah, this is the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I know I'm throwing out a bunch of names, this is the book of Genesis. And then at the end of Genesis, God's people are in Egypt and all is well, but we start the next book, Exodus, 400 years later, they're in slavery. So now you have Egypt, and Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, who is enslaving God's people, Israel. So God comes to sends Moses and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so then they tussle for a while. There's this back and forth. Pharaoh rejects God, so then God says, fine, I'm going to harden your heart against me. And he hardens his heart against him so that he can use his sin, not something that's going to end his plan, but he can use it in such a way that it's actually going to benefit his people. So if you want to reject me, okay, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to make an example of you to show the whole world that I'm actually the king, and I'm going to use your rebellion as the means of saving my people. That's what happens in the Exodus. And that's what Paul's talking about in the middle of 9, chapter 9. And it gets a little confusing because Paul's being sneaky. Here's what he's doing. He's telling them this familiar story, but he's flipping the parts. Now he says, you people of Israel who reject Jesus are playing the part of Pharaoh. And God is using your rejection in order to open up space for the Gentiles and his family. So it's like with your kids. You got two teenagers. You give one an extra half hour on Friday night past the curfew. You stay out, maybe your curfew, I don't know, I don't know what curfew you are these days. Mine's going to be like 7 p.m., you know what I'm saying? 
Maybe your curfew is like midnight or something. Um, well, let's go. Let midnight. That's fine. So you tell one kid, hey, Friday night, you got a thing. I understand 1230. That's fine. You're okay. So he's, you know, he's, he's very grateful for this. Stays out till 1230, comes back home. Next day, your other kid, your other teenager says, I need to stay out for something. It's like a thing, a promise. Here's where I am. No big deal. It's all good. You say, fine. That's cool. You can have an extra hour. You can stay out till one. Now, should this first child be upset about the second one getting an hour? No, you liked extended curfew when it helped you, you know what I mean? So why would you be upset when it works for somebody else? That is what Paul is saying to the people of Israel in Romans 9. Y'all liked it when it worked for you, when God chose you by grace, when he chose you by mercy, when he saved you by working through other people's sin. You thought it was awesome. So why are you complaining now that he's doing the same thing for them? The plan has always worked this way. And then once he lays that out, he gets to chapter 10 and says, the plan has worked. Now, all we need to do to understand chapter 10, I'm going to give you two, two verses, a little explanation. Let me tell you a story to help get the picture of what Paul is saying. The two verses are 10.4 and 10.9. Here's what 10.4 says. Chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law. It could be translated goal of the law. End of the law. is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's the first leg. Second leg would be Romans 10, 9. There's the so what. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those two verses are what Paul is saying. So the Old Testament, the law, was always designed to get us to Jesus. It was always designed to point forward to him. He was the goal from the start. So Jesus comes along and doesn't say, well, that thing is bad. Now you should follow me. What he says is, that thing is pointing to me. Now I'm here. Now all you got to do is believe. So Paul says it's about believing in Jesus that actually accesses the salvation that's available to you, not by keeping the law. Faith in Jesus is now the sole dividing line between who's in and who's not, not rule keeping. Now this doesn't make the law bad. And it doesn't mean that God changed his mind. Think about this. If I'm standing on the side of the road, you see me on the side of the road with my kids, one on either side, and I say, don't walk. And then 30 seconds later, I say, okay, walk. Have I contradicted myself? Have I changed the plan? No. Like the whole purpose of the first command, it was temporary. And it was designed to get us to a point where we could hear the second command. So on the surface, it sounds like it contradicts, but it doesn't at all. Don't walk was designed to keep them alive so that as the cars passed and when they stopped, we could then move across to the place where we were trying to go. That's how the law operates. God gave us the law in order to prepare us for Jesus. Once Jesus got here, the law has reached its intended destination. Now, some people are bothered by this because they didn't think it was the way it was supposed to work. Okay, think about it like this. You have a, uh, a married couple, a husband and wife, and they're struggling. You've seen this before. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there right now. It's just, it's just tough. Life is hard sometimes. Marriage is hard. And they're just having a rough go. Now, the husband promises, I'm going to do what it takes to make this right. Like, we're not going to give up on this. It's, trust me. It's all good. And the wife is always throwing out suggestions about things they could do. Usually, we could go to this conference. We could do this retreat. Hey, I had or not heard about another one. And then there's this one conference though, this marriage convention that she found out about, and she was like, this is the one. Last weekend in April, he, that's the only thing he heard for like months. Last weekend in April, last weekend in April, last week, we got to go to this thing. We got to go to this thing. It's what we need to heal our marriage. Last weekend in April. So finally one day he walks home and says, uh, honey, mark your calendar for the last weekend in April. 
I have done what is necessary. I have made the plans for us to do what we need to heal our marriage. She's smiling. He's smiling. Everybody's happy. So they come to this point where last week in April is here. The bags are packed. They're ready to go. They get in the car and they take off. And he's driving in some ways that she's like, this is kind of weird. I don't really know if he knows where he's going. But she knows better than to say, are you lost? (laughs) It's going to kill it before it starts, you know. So she just stays quiet. I trust he knows what he's doing. But then he veers off on this road that looks like it's going to the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden, it's bumpy. It's like they're off-roading. She's getting tossed around. She says, where are we going? He says, just trust me. And then soon after he says, just trust me, he pulls up to this cabin. He parks the car, takes out the keys, looks at her, and he says, we're here. Now we're going to work on our marriage. And he smiles. She looks up. Lonely cabin in the woods. Yeah, it's romantic, but she's a little bit angry. And she looks at him and says, I know what you're thinking, and this is not what is going to fix our marriage. (laughs) Relax, he says, and he leads her inside. Once he gets in there, he shows her that he's actually downloaded some of the videos from the convention that she was so excited about. And in addition to this, he shows her a schedule that he has put together for their weekend. Now, romance is not excluded, but the bulk of their time is devoted to patiently and intentionally talking through the issues that they need to work on in their marriage. Now, there's a part of her that wants to be angry because she feels betrayed. She feels like he lied to her. She thought she was going to the convention. But then she realizes he hasn't broken his promise. Matter of fact, he'd done more than she had ever dreamed. Well, it doesn't quite look like what she expected. It's not what she thought she wanted, but the more she thinks about it, the more she realizes that this is exactly what she has been asking for, hoping for, praying for. He kept his word in a way that was surprising to be sure, but in the end, it's perfect. That is what Paul says to his fellow Jews in Romans 10. I know it looks on the surface like he bailed on us, like he changed the game, like he burned us and went back on his word. He hasn't. There was always the plan, and it's perfect. I know you're surprised. I know you're confused, but just relax and look again. It's maybe not what we wanted, but it's what we needed. It's what he promised. The plan has worked. And that takes us to chapter 11, We can do this part fairly quickly because Paul has made the case now that you shouldn't be surprised that God is operating by grace. He always has. You shouldn't be surprised that he's using the sin of some to save others. He always has. And you should recognize that this is where we were headed all along. So now once we've laid that out, we can say in chapter 11, the plan's going to keep working. Now it starts by revisiting the key question. Take a look at the first verse in chapter 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? So this is the question. Is he a flip-flopper? And Paul says, by no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from his people, the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul says, no, 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 no. And he goes on to explain in there that some people have rejected Jesus, but that was always predicted. God always knew that not everybody would believe in him. When has that ever happened? But that doesn't change the fact that God is 100% faithful. And then later on in chapter 11, I'm going to read this portion to you. I'm not going to paraphrase it. He starts to help us try to understand where we are now. What do we do now? Now that we're in the situation where some Jews believe, but others don't, and not all Gentiles believe, but some are, how do we understand this now? And remember, we're dealing with real people, Jews and Gentiles living in Rome, trying to get along. So what are they supposed to think about each other? And what, is, what are they supposed to think about each other's friends that don't come to church with them, each other's families that aren't around? Here's where Paul's going to finally answer that question. So I'm going to read verse 11 of chapter 11, and then I'm going to jump ahead and read 17 through 24. 
Verse 11, Paul says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? These are those that are hardened. This is proof that hardening doesn't have to last forever. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all, he says. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Huh, okay. So skip down to verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, so if you don't catch what he's, catch what he's doing, he's using the image of a tree to describe the God's family, and he's saying some were broken off, and now others, you've been grafted in. Look at what he says, back to verse 18. So you've been grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Consider, therefore, verse 22, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in again, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. It may be like a weird image for us, but let me point out what Paul's saying. Two words, one for each of our questions. Remember, our questions are, what about them? Like, can they all be saved? Is there hope for everybody? And then what about our hope? Let's go ours first. When it comes to your own hope, Paul says very clearly here, if you're saved by believing in Jesus, be grateful for the story that got us here. Don't ever throw dirt on the Old Testament, the people of Israel, that got us to this point. Be grateful and humble. Don't get arrogant. Don't get all hoity-toity on me, all right? That's what Paul says. Your hope is secure. No worries there. God is not going to change. God, your Savior, is consistent. He is immutable. He is unchanging. He will never change. Faith in Jesus is enough now, and faith in Jesus will always be enough. God is faithful, but don't stop believing Don't think that faith is at a certain point no longer necessary. Don't think that just because you hopped into some water over here at one point that you can go on to live however you want without reference to Jesus, and it's all good. You can just pop out your get-out-of-jail-free card at the end. That's not how this works. That's not faith. If you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, then keep entrusting yourself to Jesus. And here's the second and the major part. And it may seem strange, but this is actually where I want to land. When you look at people who aren't saved, people who have heard and rejected the offer, people who know enough to believe but refuse to, or people who just, for whatever reason, do not seem likely to budge. You know any of those folks? I do. Do not give up hope. Do not give up hope. Now, he's speaking specifically about Jews, and I think we should start there. We should continue to pray for those who are of the physical line of Abraham, that they would become part of the faith line of Abraham, those that don't. We should keep praying for our Jewish friends and family members and those we may not know. But I also think that the point extends beyond just the Jews to encompass all, all who we might be tempted to look at and say, for any reason, uh, probably not going to happen for them. Now, some of you think that about yourself because of what I've done, what I've seen, places I've been, stuff I've been a part of. I'm just probably too far gone. The whole church people thing, 
probably not for me. Paul, excuse me, God looks at you through this text and says, nope, nope, I'm not letting you off that easy. You're just the kind of person I like to bring close, FYI. So some of you think this of yourselves. Most of us say it about others. You have any of those friends or, or family members or coworkers or neighbors that just seem too far gone? The ones you've stopped praying for because it seems so unlikely? I do. Greg, Tom, Jeff, Brandon, Anthony, Chris. I mean, I could name them for you, you know? And maybe it is unlikely. But do we not worship a God who specializes in the unlikely? I mean, and even more so, do we not worship God, a God who is unintimidated by the impossible? And so we continue to pray for these people because we believe our God is capable and we believe that he is faithful and therefore we believe that hope is available to everyone. So I want to end this message together today. We're going to do this together. We're going to do it old school too. Take out a piece of paper. Uh, Maybe it's a little note thing that you got on the way in or you want to do it on your notes app on your phone. That's perfectly fine. But I'm actually going to invite you and encourage you and ask you to write down the names of three people. I'll tell you who. And then we're going to pray for them and then we'll be done. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to think about somebody within your family or like close friends who you honestly just think is too far gone. Who, if you're being for real, you probably have written them off or you're tempted to. I want you to write down their name. I want you to picture their face. Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a best friend from high school. Whatever. Write them down. And then uh, after you've written that name down, I want you to write down a name of someone from your um, like workplace or, or social circle. If you, if you work with other people, go workplace. If you work at home or if you're independent um, and do something that's kind of on your own, think about your other social circles. A person who you know who, man, if they got saved, you would be shocked, like floored. Write down their name. And then the last thing I want you to do is to write down the name of a neighbor, somebody on your street or in your neighborhood. It could be, and keep in mind, it could be a really bad person. It could be a really good person. Maybe it's a person who's very committed to another another religion, and you're thinking, well, they're gone. That's just not going to happen for them. How do you know? Paul says, don't ever write anybody off, even those who you think have heard enough to believe and still have refused. Because God is faithful, there's hope for everyone. I want to give you just a moment, just a few seconds to just pray their names where you're sitting. And after just a moment, I'm going to pray and I'm going to close us by praying the words that end Romans 11. They're big words, strong words. So you pray for your people and then let me pray here in just a moment for us. Father, as we pray, I want to join my voice to those who are seeking your attention. We thank you for hearing us. We pray for the people whose names are written on these pieces of paper. We're grateful for the lives and the stories they represent. But as of now, so far as we know, those stories, if they ended today, would be tragedies. We pray that you turn them around, draw them close however you can, soften their hearts. We pray with a recognition of the depth of your wisdom and knowledge. It is indeed rich. 
how unsearchable your judgments are, are indeed. And your paths really are beyond tracing out, Lord. We have not known your mind. We have not been your counselor. You have never asked us for help that you should somehow repay us. You're the one who's capable of these things, Lord. And so we pray that you would do them for your glory. For from you and through you and for you are all things. And to you be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.